Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I've got what I think will be a really fun guest, Carl Lukacs with me, just to set the table. Carl is, I don't know how to best put this. We're in the middle of kind of COVID Delta. <laughs> they are our pod family's father. Uh, so my, my best friend in Nashville or one of my best friends, his father is Carl uh, and was kind enough to come on the show. So thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Great. Great to be here, Brian. Absolutely. So Let's do kind of background and a little bit of biography, kind of where you started, where you are now, uh, before we get into some of the the talking points that I want to hit on. Okay, sure, sure, Brian. Um, I guess in a capsule, I, I'm a financial professional, I guess I should say, a business executive, uh, recently retired. Uh, I started out uh, a long time ago uh, in public accounting with, with uh, PwC. Learned that industry, learned you know accounting and auditing and, and tax, and then uh, moved to a global corporation, which was my goal, Dupont. And I spent uh, over thirty years there in a wide variety of of assignments, both uh, finance and 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 business, commercial oriented. Um, during which I spent uh, uh, with our family working and living in Asia Pacific two different times. Uh, for a total of about twelve years, living in Tokyo, responsible for Asia Pacific and. It's a real wide uh, uh, lens opener for me on, on business in the world. Then uh, left DuPont in 2014 and joined Univar and had really the privilege of taking the company public, uh, doing an IPO in 2015, which was kind of a crescendo finance experience for me. And, uh, uh, and now I'm uh, uh, advising private equity firms in, in things they invest in. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought about uh, when we talked, Brian, uh, that, you know, I might share with your audience uh, <clears throat> some things about um, the uh, grow- growing a business in an emerging market. Uh, there's been a lot written about that, but uh, I've got some firsthand experience there I can share with you. And then my IPO experience, and then maybe maybe the third of three would be uh, my current focus, which is on energy transition and decarbonization and some of the hotspots that, that investors uh, are keeping an eye on. 
Yeah, absolutely. A lot to get into. And I want to start with, with DuPont. And I, I don't want to age you, but you know, that was where you started your career in the 80s. Um, a venerable institution. I know some of the family offices um, that descend from some of the original DuPont folks and just an incredible firm. What was it like joining what was at the time kind of a global titan of industry multinational to start your career? Wow, that's, a, that's really a great question. And, and you obviously do know the DuPont history. I mean, when I joined DuPont, they had no debt on the balance sheet. Wow. 50% of the, <laughs> 50% of the shares were owned by the family. Uh, and the, the, really the prime focus was invention, scientific invention, the polymer generation, you know, the, the plastics world was really invented by DuPont scientists in the 30s and just kept you know, growing with new, more and more inventions. So I was joining a science company that was focused really financially on the dividend and had no debt. And that was in 1980. And um, through my 30 years there, I saw it grow into a, you know, a modern commercial corporation with you know, a, still a, a, an A plus debt rating. But um, you know, the science started you know, evolving and, and advancing in different directions into bio-based materials and biofuels and agriculture. And so you know, I look back on my 30 years there as a, a wonderful continuous learning experience. But um, you know, the science started you know, evolving and, and advancing in different directions into bio-based materials and biofuels and agriculture. And so you know, I look back on my 30 years there as a, a wonderful continuous learning experience on the ship of a science company that kept coming out with new and better things. And you know, despite all the current problems we have with, with plastic recycling and, and collection and waste management that, that we have to address, um, you know, during the 30s to the to the 90s, that whole polymer revolution really changed the world. And, and I'd be curious to hear your opinion on this. I'm from upstate New York. So General Electric and, and Kodak were, were kind of the, the big firms when I was a kid that people spoke about. Do you think that business model of being this kind of consortium conglomerate rooted in science, but, you know, started getting cozier with Wall Street finance and going into different business verticals. Do you think that business model is is dead now? Do you think it's non-functioning given everything happening in the world? You know, I, I hope that that model is not dead because at the root, believe that is the proper business model for long-term success. I think though that model is in the crosshairs of short-termism. And that's uh, a real problem. I mean, I think that you know the financial community uh, has evolved itself, and I mean the, the advent of you know very short-term traders versus you know when I first did IR work at Dupont, you know most of the investors you know had three, four, five-year horizons and would give management teams you know at least that much time to prove that their growth thesis was working. You know, in this world, we're you know. Traders are buying on Monday and selling on Tuesday. You know that that puts a different pressure on the stock, which puts pressure on management. And you know, I'll say at least it complicates capital deployment decision making, R and D investment decisions, things that you know you know are are good for the long term if you choose right. And so I hope that model's not dead. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me to see, you know, the collapse of General Electric which I think has a lot of parallels to, to DuPont in a lot of ways. This insistence on this, to your point, short-termism, I think when I started understanding financial markets was you know, quarter to quarter, but to your point, it's almost become daily now. <laughs> um, and it's very hard to have long-term strategic thinking. And plus this, this continuous dividend at, at first was really a huge value proposition to the shareholders, but now it's almost become... Um, a burden to some of these yes. firms where it's like the third rail, you can't touch the dividend, but ultimately mm -hmm. it's taking away from shareholder value in a lot of ways. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm um, uh, kind of anti-stock buyback and pro, you know, reinvest the cash earnings of the company for future growth. I mean, that's management's job really to grow the value of the enterprise. And if you're rubbing nickels together to pay the dividend every quarter, then, you know, you're, you've got a whole different agenda, really. And, and given where inflation is, I think it's kind of a losing proposition these days anyways, with how minuscule dividends are. I think the average S&P I saw this morning 
the the dividend for the for you know kind of the S and P index is two percent right now. I mean, why why bother sending <laughs> sending the cash out in a lot of ways? And when you look at what Bezos has done and said that you know they're going to continue to reinvest into the company to grow long term value, it seems like tech companies are are going to almost an old school playbook of how to grow the firms. What what do you think about that? I should have said earlier in the bio, I, I've done a lot of work in investor relations for DuPont and worked with activist shareholders and all that. And my best conversations with investors were the ones, you know, what we're getting to, which are about, you know, what's the, what's the long-term growth plan that management has for the company? And, uh, uh, and how are you going to, you know, what are the key initiatives that, that will, will put, project the company into that, into that growth? You know what are the risks? What's the competitive dynamics of, of the landscape? And then you know, show me management the metrics that I, the investor, can use to measure your progress. Investors that that talk to to us that way at Dupont and at Univar, you know, those are the ones that I, I paid the most attention to because you know I used to say to myself, you know, they get it. That that's what it's about. And you know, they, they dialed way down, you know, the conversation about, well, you know, it's, it's uh, September now, you know, how's the quarter coming, you know, how are the numbers coming in, you know, for the quarter? And yet, you know, the reality is that, you know, they're, they, if, they, if they're investing other people's money and the company does have, you know, uh, a quarter different from what the street expectations are, you know, it moves the stock and, and they ha- they're accountable to their, to their constituents for that. So it's a, it's a real stalemate. So, uh, you know, I, I, I believe in the, you know, the business fundamentals, right? I mean, what's my product or service? You know, how am I going to create sustainable competitive advantage versus the other players in the field? What, you know, what end markets am I going to choose uh, to play in and what not, you know, because strategy is all about choices. Uh, how much capital do I need? How much human capability do I, do I need? Something that, I think is not looked at enough by investors. And then, you know, what are the metrics that, that are going to measure progress? And, and, and do we have to, do we have to adjust course, you know, during the time period of executing that plan? And how did, how did it come about that you pivoted to Southeast Asia internally within DuPont? Was that a, were you agitating for that? Was that a voluntold situation? Was that just part of the corporate culture that if you wanted to progress you needed to spend time at various firms or various locations within the firm. Great, great question. Uh, okay, so a couple of things. I think maybe I was more the the, the precipitator of it. I mean, you know, I, I've always felt myself kind of the Marco Polo of our family, and wanted to get out and see the world, which was one of the reasons I joined Dupont. You know, to 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 have a family, raise a family, and see the world, and. Uh, uh, I got a chance in in um, 1989 to move to Tokyo with four young children and be the CFO of the Dupont Group in Japan, which was at that time about a two billion dollar enterprise, uh, a billion dollar trading company, and a uh, billion dollars of sales through about 15 joint ventures. And and it it, it was it was so exciting. <laughs> Every day was you know you didn't want to end. And I thought, gee, this is this is real business. And uh, I was there six years and, and came back and ran a business for DuPont uh, and then got another chance to go back as the head of Asia Pacific uh, in 2008 through 2012. And at that time, I mean, this was, you know, just, I, I, I like to say that I, I took off from Kennedy Airport on the day that Lehman collapsed, right, in 2008. So, you know, thanking my lucky stars that I was heading to the, the growth part of the world is that really true? Is that the day that? Oh, oh, oh that's the day that's when the, the world day. blew apart. Wow. Oh yeah, my wife and I were on a plane to Tokyo, and and here China really didn't dip, you know, with with the whole financial crisis from two thousand and eight and nine, um, and Dupont had the exact right products for the automotive industry, the electronics industry. Solar panels were coming up, and you know that silver line within the solar panels is a Dupont product called Solomet. We had most of the market, so we, we had everything, including agriculture, um, uh, uh, herbicides, pesticides, insecticides that were right for the Asian crops. And, and so we were growing well in China. Uh, India, India was coming up fast. And I had, uh, we spotted ASEAN and 
and I thought the headquarters really wasn't even aware of ASEAN on the map. And we had about a half a million dollars in sales and, and we grew it to 1.5 billion um, in, uh, in four years. And it was you know, one of those highlights that you get in your career that you look back on and see, you know, that was really fun. That was great, you know, and, um, you know, what went well and what didn't. And uh, I look back on that. It was, it was a great highlight. So I want to dig a little bit into that juxtaposition that you just talked about. I think the timing is fascinating. You're leaving to go really embrace this globalization theme that, that you had clearly seen playing out within DuPont at the same time that, you know, the financial markets were essentially going haywire. Um, was that a, a trend that, that globalization that you saw playing out internally that you want to be on the vanguard of internally? Not really. I wasn't that smart. I mean, it was really just a chance. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, you know, there's a lot of luck in your career and, and an opportunity came up to get the top job out there in the growth region of, of the company. So it's, it's, you know, it's like, uh, you know, an athlete getting a chance to go to the Olympics. It, it was just, you know, sign me up. My, our, our CEO at the time said, you know, Carl's bags are packed and at the curbside, you know, the day they, they, uh, they gave me the chance to go out. So it was more, more personal. And, uh, you know, I wanted to get ASEAN on the map and, uh, you know, maybe I'll share with you, Brian, that at, at that time, I, some very wise executives at DuPont, the CEO, the COO, and the head of technology took me aside and said, and they gave me the same advice. I, I don't know to this day if they collaborated or not, but they said, look, you, you've got so much energy, you're, you're going to burn out. You, you'll, you'll have a to-do list of 100 opportunities. And they encouraged me to take some time to figure out really with data and with other viewpoints, what the top three, four, five priorities should be for growth in Asia for the company. And, you know, power up the resourcing and capital there. Figure that out, right? And, and you know, in my career to that point, I had, I had done it through energy and, and getting a lot done. And, and that was a change for me. And so I gathered our, our 17 country heads together and we went about to figure out, you know, what, were, what, what the needle movers would be. And, and we, after a lot of arguing and, and data getting and, and deliberation, we, came, we landed on three things. One was that our company was trying to push out to Asia U.S. products. And the Asian customers, especially in the emerging markets, had different needs, different price points. You know, some were cutting corners and, you know, just they wanted just good enough performance for, for, for local markets because of the, the economics, the affordability. Others wanted global products like the large electronics companies and auto companies. And so we, we weren't connecting our, our research power. And DuPont had thousands of PhDs and they weren't connected to Asian customers. So that, that was number one. We got to get more new products in Asia for, that are tailored for Asian customers. The second one in, in ASEAN was I had a sales force of hundreds and hundreds of new college graduates <laughs> that, that had never sold before or, and really had never worked for a global company. And um, so they needed, they needed training big time. And so we, we put in place rapidly a sales training effort that took about nine months, trained 500 plus people, and sales started immediately going up as they were more professional in their approach. They knew how to price better, and uh, uh, that worked really well. And then the last, the last of the three was powering up on the strategic accounts, because you know one of the dynamics you're probably aware of is that at that time, you know, China was, I guess, probably in maybe the 20, 25th year of its economic miracle, and manufacturing. Uh, in uh, factory sites were starting to shift to out of China, that there were other problems coming up, social problems in China that made certain parts of ASEAN look more attractive, Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, especially Cambodia. Singapore was, was the headquarters and, uh, of ASEAN. And so we powered up a sales, marketing, and technology team that went to you know, Samsung, LG, Hyundai, Toyota, Panasonic, uh, Canon, 
and said, look, we see you shifting to ASEAN. We, we will be there with the right products you need as these new plants come up. And, and that turned out, those three turned out to be the big needle movers and, and drove the growth that, that we got going in uh, automotive parts and you know, polymers into the automotive uh, industry, electronics you know, from, from you know, the wide range of products there and then into uh, agriculture as well. So I wanna to go to the other side of the coin, you know, looking back on it, doing the postmortem, what, what do you think you got wrong? Well, I'd say that uh, uh, we probably had to spend too, this will surprise you, probably too much time on ethics and appropriate behavior. Uh, we had a workforce, new, a new workforce that, you know, we have, we have a strong, DuPont has a very strong culture on doing what's right and legal compliance. And we hadn't invested enough time in training our, our, our sellers in particular on what right means from a U.S. perspective. I mean, you know that U.S. corporations are subject to, I'd say, the strictest uh, rules of international business behavior, ethical behavior of any you know, companies in the world. And you know, if, if someone misbehaves out there um, that, that you know, in, in, in Vietnam or Thailand, for example, it's still DuPont and DuPont's guilty under the FCPA uh, rules. But um, uh, so that was one. I, I should have I, I put more up money up front to onboard people with enough of that training so we weren't distracted by problems they came up that we had to fix. Uh, the second one was, you know, our decision-making process around investing, you know, hard dollars for sticks and bricks investments in Asia. I, I wish I was more successful at convincing headquarters for some of the projects that didn't get funded. Um, uh, I was very vocal about, you know, going to headquarters, you know, with requests for capital and, and, and was successful on, on a lot of them. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I could have done more there. Uh, I'd say those were the two big ones. So, you know, huge success, you know, running this global point of contact within Southeast Asia. I, I, before we go to the next phase, I'm, I'm curious, I'm going to ask you an unfair question. <laughs> you know, international relations right now have obviously changed dramatically. There's, there's a lot of conjecture within the financial community that, the the we may have already experienced the peak of globalization. Japan, even though it's the third largest economy in the world, seems to kind of be the sick man of Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, are you bullish on that part of the world? Are you bearish um, just from a, a, a global kind of business perspective? And are there certain areas that you like more than others? Great. No, that's really a great question. I mean, there's there's uh, okay. So to answer your question up front, and then I'll unpack it. Bullish. <laughs> And it will be bumpy. <laughs> you know, my, my firm belief is that, you know, the billions of people that are living, you know, below, let's say the, you know, the, the poverty level really in the world are going to rise to a higher level, and they're they're going to uh, get to a better level, and they should. It's 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 a, it's a it's a moral, <laughs> you know, priority of the world, and uh, in doing so, they're going to uh, eat better, buy products, earn more money have better housing, have cleaner water, have less disease. You know, all of that is an opportunity that, that, that's going to go on for decades. And um, so that's, that's the fundamental basis for my bullishness. Now, you know, what kind of gets in the way is, is some of the short-termism, um, some deeply different cultural ways of doing things, um, let's take international property, a subject we could talk, have a whole podcast about, uh, you know, the, the view on, you know, if you have a secret in the U.S., you can protect it with a patent, you know, isn't universally held around the world. And there's a lot written about, you know, uh, IP theft, you know, in Asia and in China. And I lived through a lot of those first firsthand experiences with DuPont technology. And uh, so that's got to get sorted out. That's why I'm pro uh, these trade agreements, you know, that the, you know, certain organizations um, have been promoting that try to get the world to a standard of, of uh, practice around, around business. Um, so uh, I think it's going to be bumpy that the politics of the local countries, you know, gets, gets kind of bumpy. <clears throat> geopolitics, I've never seen geopolitics in my lifetime as active, as uncertain, and as risky as it is right now. I mean, uh, uh, 
not to advertise for any any anyone in particular, but I'm a big fan of an organization called Eurasia. Um, Ian Bremer, who's on the news quite a bit, his team you know, has great foresight into what's happening out there in the world, and you know has great bearing on U.S. investors because uh, uh, these are forces that I think are going to be more uh, more visible and more in the news uh, from the last you know say 30, 50 years of American dominance, you know, in industry and bringing American products, you know, out to the world. So I think that all that's shifting. Um, if you look at, you know, the, um, the, uh, um, you know, back again to the foundation, I mean, the rising level of, 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 of living standard <clears throat> is underway and it's going to continue. And it's a great thing. Uh, I, I tend to agree with you, but I do think there's going to be some, <laughs> some stumbling along the way for sure. Um, so let's, let's pivot to um, the kind of that next stage of the career. How hard was it to make a move after being at, you know, such a, a huge um, global institution for 30 years to go on to the new adventure of taking uh, Univar public? It, it was it was a really an easy transition. I, a, a friend of mine from Dupont was the CEO at Univar and 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 asked me to come out and I'll never forget that phone call. He said, um, "Hey, would you like to come out and you know kind of lead our IPO that's coming up here soon? We're private equity owned, and you know I I it, it I like going to going to Japan the second time. I mean, it took about ten seconds to to say to think through that and say yes and. And you know, because you know, as a finance, per, finance financially trained person, and, and spending at least half my career in finance, um, you know, the IPO is is still, I think, despite you know the competition from SPACs, and that's a whole other topic that I'd love to share my views on with you. It's sort of my views on it is sort of happening in the real world right now, anyway. But but the IPO is 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 really the 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 best of the U.S. capital system at work. Yes, the fees are high, the banks and the lawyers and the accountants, but but it's 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 raising capital to put to use in a in a, in a business to grow an enterprise. And the fundamental, you know, the foundation blocks for what happens in that process, you know, goes back to you know your 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 finance one hundred and one books in from business schools, and it's still true. And I think from from you know, experience in, in around the world in other capital markets, especially in Asia, the U.S. system is 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 the best system in the world. It's the most liquid. It's it's the one that everyone runs to when there's trouble elsewhere. And and the IPO, you know, the the, the idea of a business team coming together with an idea, a product, you know, a plan, and and going to the capital markets for money. Um, going through all of the, you know, heavy SEC regulatory oversight, the S-1 filings, the legal oversight from the lawyers, the underwriters, the bankers, um, you know, all of the representations that man management has to, to, to make, the risk analysis, you know, it, it doesn't get any better than that, really, in business, in my view. And um, so I, I, don't even, I don't even remember the transition. I, I, I didn't walk. I ran to Chicago. And uh, set up shops. Spent about nine months in deep, deep research on every aspect of the business. Um, you know, work, interviewing and working with the management team, and uh, and the private equity owners of the company. And then we launched it in June of 2015, and and uh, did a two-week roadshow around the U.S. and found ourselves with a book order of 13 times the offering. And so we came out with a little bit more um, and paid down a lot of, of, of expensive debt and uh, got the company going on, on a right pathway. So it was, it was a, a wonderful experience. I wish everyone could, could get the front row seat, you know, with the steering wheel in their hands at, like I did and, and experience that. It was terrific. So you alluded to this and I want to get into your thoughts about private equity uh, considering it seems like this was a PE sponsored firm that you took IPO, but before that, what are your thoughts? You know, you see a lot more, obviously the SPAC craze has been going on for the last 12 months ballpark. You see firms doing direct listings. You hear about venture 
firms, unicorns, and now we have dragons, um, <laughs> apparently um, staying private longer. And there are less publicly traded companies than there were 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about how capital markets work in America today and, and all these changes that we're seeing? Yeah, I think it's all it's all good. It's you know it, under the umbrella of continuous improvement. Um, I think some of the uh, reason you know being a public company is hard. It's tough. I mean the SEC requirements, the, the Sarbanes Oxley, you know, not talked enough about by the investment community. Big burden on on companies. Big expense and a good thing. You know, it it, it makes you put internal controls in and document them. And uh, and now systems controls. I mean, you know, cybersecurity. You know, you have to have really good internal controls uh, around your systems to to get you know a a certificate from your auditors that your internal controls are well. So all that is is it's a almost a different environment. It is a different environment than a private company. And um, so I understand why. uh, companies want to go problem laughing because, you know, when I was at DuPont, I, I, I used to say, gee, I, I wish we were a private company. <laughs> and then when I went to Univar, I said, gee, I can't wait till we go public. <laughs> and, you know, it's there, there, there's pluses and minuses to both. So I think all of these new avenues going direct, it's a, it's a good thing. Let it happen. Let's see how it goes. The traditional IPO is alive and well. I think that the expertise that the investment bankers bring to the table to to, to line up uh, their clients, their, you know, the, the, the most likely investors that, that would go for that kind of business model or, or, or company investment uh, is, is a good thing. It's a valuable thing. Uh, the whole process is extremely complex, fast moving, long hours. And so you need a good, good guide there from your, your lead legal underwriter and, and, and all that. So um, I don't see it as as you know good and bad. It's all a, a continuous improvement, evolving. Some of these new experiments, you know, that, that don't work out, won't, and they'll go go away. Um, in in 2019, uh, when I was with Univar, we bought our largest competitor uh, in North America for two billion dollars, and and they were owned by a SPAC. So I've actually done a a, a purchase of a. Uh, of a company that was owned by SPAC. And I, I got to, you know, sort through the reads and look at the, the intricacies of capital outflows that come with SPACs. And, you know, my opinion, I'm sure there's others that would, that would argue with me, but, you know, the, the, uh, the capital that goes out to, to, to folks that created that SPAC, um, you know, there wasn't enough transparency on that. The SEC is looking at that right now and going to come out with new rules. Um, so, you know, I, it, it, it didn't quite feel like the um, dynamics of a public public market, you know, with full transparency. So I'm not a real pro, a fan of SPACs, <laughs> as you can tell. But, um, you know, I let the market let the market um, uh, answer that question. I think it's starting to answer that right now. I, I, you probably saw yesterday's Wall Street Journal uh, in depth on that, that, that the SPAC stocks as a group were down 25% year date for versus, you know, the markets up, you know, in the teens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I think more market participants is better, right. For everybody. And I had a, a old, uh, a friend of mine, he's an old wall street guy say that, you know, if, if wall street has a financial product that has an abbreviation or, or uh, an anagram or, <laughs> some kind of shorthand and you don't fully understand how it works, it probably means you as a retail investor should stay away from it. <laughs> good, good, um, good, good advice. Very good. Advice. Which, you know, I think is pretty good advice. Um, and for a lot of, you know, astute folks, SPACs are probably great for a lot of, you know, companies. It's probably a nice way to unlock liquidity. And, and that, that I think transitions to my next topic that I want to get into you here uh, with you here is, the advent and the rise of private equity, certainly during your career, mm-hmm. it, it must be fairly dramatic considering when you started at DuPont in the 80s and it, was, Very. it wasn't even an asset class. <laughs> and now it seems to be the whole economy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you raised that up because I, I'm working, I, I retired from Univar uh, at the end of last year. And I'm, I'm now an advisor to four private equity firms. And, you know, having 
worked for one of their companies as CFO of Univar, um, you know, that gave me a certain perspective on how they operate. But now, you know, even more on the inside as an advisor, you know, I, I, I work for, with four great ones. And, you know, when, when we have, uh, you know, our Zoom calls about you know, potential investment, you know, it's that conversation that I mentioned earlier in our, con in our, in our discussion today, you know, it's about the fundamentals, you know, what, what is the growth thesis of this company? Why are we attracted to it? What do we think we could do that the management team or the current owners are not doing that can raise the value of that, of that, of that enterprise? And, and having a will, willingness to, you know, spend four, five, six, seven years at it versus a couple of months, you know, that's, that's business. That's business the, the right way for business investing. So, so I, I think it's been a, a, a great add-on. I know there's been now, you know, there are thousands of them, right? And, and they come in all shapes and ranges of behavior. There, there are, you know, those that misbehave and, and uh, you know, more shoot from the hip. But, you know, I've been fortunate to not get too tangled up with, with ones that are like that. So I think you have to be, you know, do your due diligence as an investor and, and pick the ones that, that, you know, meet your, your view of how to invest correctly. And the way we're going about it with the four I'm working with, I, I'm enjoying very much because it's that, that longer term um, uh, view that's focused on, you know, business fundamentals, you know, coming out with a product or service that, that is, is better than the rest, that you can sustain that advantage, how do you create that advantage and sustain it? And then how do you grow into markets and geographies that you're not in today? Uh, and then, you know, I'll tell you, the, not the secret, but the most talked about topic in those conversations might surprise you is people. You know, of course, it's killer app and technology and all that stuff, which which is really important as well. But it it, it really is about people. Do we have the right CEO? Uh, do we have the next, you know, ten senior executives that can pull this off? And then something that I've never heard an investor ask me, which I think is a key question: is Do you know who the top one, two, three percent of the employees are in that company? that really, if they departed, the, the company couldn't operate, it would collapse. I, I, I really believe that as, I, as I've worked with companies in, 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 at DuPont and elsewhere, I think that you, it's, it's no more than about two or 3%. And you know, at Univar, that was 10,000 people in total. So you know, a couple hundred people were responsible for not just the growth of the company, but for day-to-day -day existence. And you know what's management doing to to keep them for, for start in this talent short world that we're in right now, and to reward them properly, to motivate them, to get them into the right positions. That that I think is emerging from from this you know 2019 20 COVID period you know as as the next big issue. I mean, it always was an issue, but it always was a challenge. But I think there's more recognition to that. So I, I've, I've gone a little bit off your PE topic, but yes, good for PEs, you know, for the right ones that approach it well and have done it right. And uh, and then this people point. And are you hearing within my world, you know, we don't we don't interact much with private equity folks, um, but certainly within the family office space, there's there's a concept that they have a superior business model because of their ability to go beyond the traditional 10-year uh, fund vintage format. And you've seen this uh, rolling out of continuation funds, right? That mm -hmm. maybe have 20-year time horizons or maybe evergreen private equity funds. What are your thoughts about that space? Well, you know, I think for the investment community, there's always, you know, a portion of the capital allocation that's going to go to, you know, alternative and long-term. And so there, there's willing investors to take that kind of time horizon. Um, I, I, I think that the, uh, uh, you know, 20 years is kind of a long time, but maybe a thematic fund that sees, you know, multiple sort of knock-on investments as an industry develops. And, you know, I think we're getting into that right now with the energy transition world as we move from fossil-based fuels 
you know, to non-fossil-based fuels. I think that we're in the early stages, you know, everybody wants to talk about electric cars and batteries, and that's part of the story, but there's so much more to that transition. And, you know, a 20-year fund that makes knock-on investments as that technology advances and new inventions come along, you know, could be a could be a very good good model for the future. So, uh, you know, I think that 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 part is is all good. I'm I'm not wild about the you know invest and come in with a wrecking ball um, approach. Uh, some do that, but uh, I think there's a place for it. I think that we're evolving in that PE. I, I'm not sure about you know the competitive advantage on the 10 year point, but but uh, yeah, I think there's willing investors to go that long. So let's let's get into what you're seeing with this obviously transition within the energy space and decarbonization. Um, a question that I'd love to ask, you know, professionals such as yourself um, within the public market space. I mean, what are your best ideas right now? What are you seeing that are some of the most exciting places to deploy capital today? Well, you know, that's a tough one. Um, because I'm a student. <laughs> I mean, there is so much new happening in this area that, you know, I've, I, I haven't invested yet. <laughs> uh, I know there's ETFs popping up. There's some stocks that, you know, jumped out early. Um, you know, the hot topics there have been uh, electric vehicles, you know, the whole Tesla stock story, and then the trucks stories that are coming behind it new EV cars, um, solar and wind, you know, they get all the press. But if you go deeper, um, you know, I put my student hat on and what I'm studying are things like, I, I, this is the second uh, Phoenix rising of hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, hydrogen, it's, it's got a lot of science ahead to pull this off, but, you know, it could be, it's, it's, uh, uh, if you've seen, there are some hydrogen fuel cells in California now that, uh, um, and and the Japanese car makers are have some models out. There are very few stations though to to, to revive them. But you know the exhaust coming out of a hydrogen fuel cell car is is water, so it's you know a, a perfect solution to to CO two emission you know elimination. Um, um, the problem with hydrogen is that it is very very light and volatile, and uh, it was used as a bomb when you you know contain it in in a, in a in a in a shell, so it's tough to transport. And um, but there's science popping up to convert it into ammonia, which is less volatile. Ship it in ammonia. Um, there are some exciting exciting ideas popping up uh, in other parts of the world. I think Europe's in the lead. Um, uh, up in the northern part of Europe, they have. Um, solar panel, uh, floating solar panel uh, platforms that are in, I think the North Sea or, or, or somewhere, but um, that are converting sunlight into electricity to power up the uh, electrolysis process to separate salt, basically the H in H2O, separate the hydrogen from HTO from salt water, capture that hydrogen, pipe it um, uh, onto the shore, onto, on land, and, and use it in marine terminals to fuel uh, boats. Uh, that's coming up pretty quickly. So th there's so much to keep an eye on. Um, battery technology, uh, you know, really hasn't moved in 50 years. Uh, a lot of great companies have taken a shot at it. Um, how, do you, how do you come up with something better than the cathode anode process that, that we've had for so long that doesn't weigh so much? And, and yeah, so that, that's yet to come. Um, carbon capture and sequestration is talked about a lot, you know, by the oil industry. Um, you know, we, we I, I firmly believe we do need to reduce the amount of CO2 going into the atmosphere. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, the World Economic Forum has great materials on this and, and it's a whole, a whole study of all the goals that are out there and, and the world is, is really rallying now. Uh, I think the right way uh, in in, the, in this direction, but it's a 20, 30, 40 year mission here. Um, and how can we in the short term reduce the amount of methane that's being uh, spent into the atmosphere from industrial processes? And with my background in chemicals and chemical companies, you know, some of the investments that, you know, pop up that we look at are technologies to, to, to eliminate that 
emission or reduce it. Uh, catalyst technologies, and then there are things as it sounds almost um, very fundamental, but you know, fans to suck the CO2 out of the air, you know, to pull the air out of Canada's got some leading pilot plants up, up and running doing that right now. Ca chemical catalysts, recycling of plastics is, is here and now. Uh, and and moving to to a wider range of plastics and you know the whole the biggest barrier there is the collection process and uh, you know not all of us humans you know are good at you know separating our our recyclable from non at our homes the industrial uh, world not doing that how can we get that done and advance the technology around you know reprocessing materials back into its ingredients. Um, there's 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 a lot lot going on. I, you're probably familiar with uh, there's a new startup in Silicon Valley. I think that uh, is the former uh, chief technology officer from Tesla who is going after now with his own company the recycling of those car batteries and is aiming at you know something like 90% plus recyclability of the materials that that were used to make that battery, uh, which is a very good thing because of the the environmental footprint that it took to make that battery in the first place. So, so the, those are kind of the hot spots that that I'm really a student at, and I, I read a lot about it, and I'm just uh, you know inching my way into it. And I think that that especially for investors that can take a longer term view, um, there's there there will be there will be plenty of opportunities. There will also be plenty of short term stocks that run up real fast and, and maybe do the opposite not that long after. So you've got to sort through the, the fact from the fiction on the technology side. And, and along those lines, as we finish up here, if you know your children are, are my age and older, so um, but maybe if you were talking to your grandchildren, right? Your, your, <laughs> your, your little guy Brooks is the same age as my oldest. They're eight, they're in third grade, they're best buddies. If, if in five or 10 years, Brooks were to come to you and say, hey, I want to be in the business community. I mean, where would you point him? It seems like, you know, the the old stalwart white shoe investment banks aren't necessarily where all the talent is going these days. Private equity has become very competitive in that space. Some of these larger family offices have become very competitive. And obviously, the allure of tech has really grown mm -hmm. over the last 10 plus years. What advice do you give folks that are just, you know, entering into uh, a business career? Brian, you know, you're really going to the, the heartstrings now when you talk about our grandchildren <laughs> and, and, and Brooks, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, I'd love to name all nine of our grandchildren because, you know, I, I, I will tell them the same thing. And, and, and it's, it's amazing you raised this because um, I have had conversations with Brooks. He's nine now about Brooks, you know, what kind of things are you doing in school that, that are about science? And I'm so thrilled to hear, you know, what he says back to me about what he's learning. Cause that, that's how I would, I would have the conversation with all nine of our grandkids. I'd say, look, you know, finance is important and it's, and it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Uh, uh, the, the financial markets will continue to evolve and, you know, investment banking has a big lure attraction right now and, and has for, you know, a decade and maybe that'll continue. Maybe it won't, you know, I, I'm aging myself, but when I graduated from college, you know, there weren't investment banks, really, there were merchant banks over in Europe and, you know, public accounting and the, the big eight CPA firms were, was, you know, the corporate finishing school. Um, but all that aside, you know, at this, at these 10 seconds in time, you know, I think that digitization of the world is going to happen, continue to happen very rapidly. And you know, the sciences are going to continue to evolve aided by that digitization. So those, that, those two, those two realms of science, both, you know, data, um, artificial intelligence, what's coming there. My goodness, I mean, there's so much, you know, that that's ahead of, uh, of us that our kids are going to see. Look at how much has happened in my lifetime, you know, going from a world uh, and a work environment that, you know, can you imagine going to work and not having a screen in, on your desk <laughs> like I did in 1980? I mean, how, how do you work, <laughs> right? We couldn't even imagine it. And going from, you know, 1980 to today and look how much that, that work 
environment has evolved and the value that's been created from the products that have been invented and, and brought to market by all that. So, so I would say the sciences, uh, if I had to pick, you know, the life sciences, especially, and, and they're starting to merge together, you know, biochemistry, um, uh, advanced digitization as a, as a tool in, in a pharmacological science and, and developing medicines. Um, you know, what we're going to do in the, with crops is, is really uh, ahead of us too. And it's so much good has happened already uh, to reduce the environmental impact of, of, of pesticides in particular, uh, but to get more, more output per, uh, per acre, which, you know, companies like Syngenta and Corteva and, and, uh, and others are, are pursuing. So, so that, that would be the, the, the conversation, Brian, that, that, I would have, and I will have with all nine of our grandkids. I, I really appreciate that. It's so good to talk with you who knows Brooks and knows Matt and Grace Ann and our family like that. So I really appreciate that question. Well, you know, I'm probably going to steal some of your answers from my own two kids. So that's helpful. Well, Carl, this has been awesome. You know, we've gone over time, but it's been really compelling and you know, I want to thank you for carving out some time on a Friday before a long holiday weekend uh, to share some of your insights and story with. It's It's been a great adventure for you. And, and um, I look forward to staying in touch and hopefully, you know, connecting uh, at some point in Nashville um, in person. So thank I look you. Forward, I look forward to that too, Brian. And really just the opposite. Thanks for this chance to talk with you and and about these things, which I get excited about. And best of luck to you and, 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 and great investment results from your clients. Awesome. Thanks, Carl. Take care. Thank you, Brian. Bye. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Thank you.